a new episode of Vascular Crosstalk, a podcast brought to you by the North American Vascular Biology Organization, NAPO. Today marks the bittersweet moment on this podcast, as I will be stepping down as the host of Vascular Crosstalk. It has been my honor to spearhead this project for NAPO's Education Committee, and I am cheering for the new host taking over this coming January. To you, our audience, I want to thank you for listening, tuning in on each episode, and I want to invite you to continue to join us in our future episodes. Okay, let's start. On today's new episode, we welcome Dr. Robert Hegley, Distinguished Professor of Medicine and Biochemistry and Distinguished Medical Research Chair at the University of Western Ontario in Canada. Dr. Hegeli cares for over 2,500 patients in his lipid clinic at University Hospital, and his laboratory has discovered the causal genes for over 20 human diseases and has also developed the world's first targeted next-generation sequencing panel for dyslipidemias. He was among the first in the world to use five medications that are now routinely prescribed to treat dyslipidemia or diabetes, he has published over 900 papers and is in the top 1% of highly cited scientists in the world. The website Expertscape.com in 2023 ranked him number one globally in the area of hypertriglyceridemia and number two for disorders of lipid metabolism. He received the 2019 American Heart Association Lyman Duff Award and the 2020 Family Heart Foundation Pioneer Award. He has co-authored many clinical practice guidelines for cholesterol, blood pressure, and diabetes, and he has trained numerous physicians, medical students, and graduate students. And we are truly honored by his presence on this podcast today, so let's begin. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of our podcast. And today with us, we have Dr. Hegley, who is a legend in metabolism, in cardiovascular metabolism. So uh, we're very excited to have him today. Um, and we want to start off by asking you to give us a small, just short and sweet elevator speech about your research. That way, any of our listeners that are not familiar with your research can uh, know a little bit of what you do. Sure. Well, thanks, Lysandra. And it's really great to be with you today and with the NAVBO, NAVBO community. Uh, I was with, uh, around when NAVBO first started and, well, you know, the very early pioneers that started that group. And so uh, it's it's an honor for me to be with you. So um, I'm a medical doctor, but I actually also do basic science research. So I have a foot in both uh, sort of both worlds uh, so my my medical practice is patients with lipid disorders, so hypercholesterolemia, hypertriglyceridemia. I'm still quite active in, in clinical practice. I do that maybe two or three days a week. And then I also have a genomics lab. So for sort of 30 years, I got in on the ground floor of the Human Genome Project when that was first starting. And so I've always been uh, kind of trying to merge uh, human genome technology, so usually DNA sequencing, uh, initially Sanger sequencing, and now 
next generation DNA sequencing. Uh, in, but using actually the patients from my practice as the reagents for my research, if I can say so. And they, uh, and so in the course of doing this, we've discovered uh, causal genes uh, in, for many uh, human uh, phenotypes, uh, both rare phenotypes. And then lately, we've also been looking at common, so these sort of polygenic uh, contributors to common or garden variety hypercholesterolemia or hypertriglyceridemia. So that was more that would be a long elevator ride, what I just told you, but uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was great. I um, You touched upon really interesting things that merging of your clinical practice with what you do for research and also being early on in the Human Genome Project. Uh, that's very interesting. How did you get into that? Well, so uh, when I was, uh, so I, I did a medical degree and then I was interested in, in a faculty job. So my, my medical specialty is actually endocrinology. So I did like internal medicine, endocrinology. And my goal was actually to teach originally. I, I you know, did not initially have an, an interest in research, but I was told at the university where I was, where I wanted to work, University of Toronto, in Canada, I was told that I have to do a research fellowship in order to get a teaching job. And I said, well, like, that doesn't make sense. Like, what did like, what does research have to do with teaching? But now I can see that that was, in fact, really, really wise. So I ended up doing like a four year postdoc, uh, actually at the Rockefeller in New York, and then, uh, well, two years at the Rockefeller, and then two years at Howard Hughes, in Salt Lake City. And that was pure, that was all lab. That was like, I mean, I was doing a little bit of clinical work, but it was essentially like sort of 95% uh, working in the lab. And it, I was always interested in genetics. And so I chose that discipline because it, it seemed like there, first of all, there was a gap, there was a need at that time for the um, uh, but, you know, and plus it was a, a really exciting time. It was, you know, mm -hmm. the time when, when the human genome was being mapped. Anyway, so that was my motivation. But then I realized that I really like research. And, and so I thought, well, and then I fortunately came back and then, was, you know, got on faculty, was able to start a lab and then have been, you know, continuously funded uh, since that time. And, and about 20 years ago, I moved to my current university uh, in London, Ontario, uh, University of Western Ontario. And that was because there was this research chair that became available in my area, cardiovascular genetics, which was perfect for me. And so it was a bit of a leap. Um, Toronto was my hometown and, uh, you know, never was it, uh, you know, besides my postdoc, you know, I thought, well, you know, okay. But then I took a chance and uh, took the chair and I thought originally I would only stay for five years but now I've been in my current position for more than 20 years and uh, same same lab same building you know everything now has been very uh very constant that's amazing I uh, love that your story's a lot about taking chances you didn't even think about doing research but you took a chance um because you wanted to teach so you started doing your research um and even the place where you are now is because you also took a chance um i think that's a really um important theme sometimes in research even with projects you take a chance um speaking of which what is a project 
that maybe you initially thought, well, this is a crazy idea, but then you just took a chance and <laughs> it started to work. Yeah. So, I mean, now, I mean, as you can see, I'm an, I'm an older, I'm an older guy. And so I, I can think of several examples of this. Uh, so one was, so I was working in, in lipids. So this is now thinking back, back into the kind of like around the year 2000 or so. So more than 20 years ago. So I was still young, you know, assistant professor and just starting. And I was focused very much on genes that are causal for lipid phenotypes. So we mm -hmm. discovered the world's first mutations in hepatic lipase, so hepatic lipase deficiency in my patients, and then a lot of familial hypercholesterolemia mutations. And so it was always lipids. But then I had this one family that had diabetes, uh, and uh, they had an inherited form of diabetes, a very striking form. And it was really then one of my patients, one of the members of that family, she said, well, you're a geneticist. And I said, yeah. She said, well, what, what we have, isn't what we have genetic? And I said, well, I think so. But, you know, diabetes kind of not my area. I'm like, she said, well, but, you know, you should be able to figure it out. So she challenged mm -hmm. me. Um, and I said, okay, well, I'm not working really in diabetes, but same, you know, it's the same approach, you know, linkage mapping and sequencing. And uh, so then we, uh, so then I took it as a challenge from her. I didn't have any funding even. I was using funding left over from other projects. And, and so we, but we discovered then the gene for, for that condition, familial partial lipodystrophy. Uh, so that was the nuclear lamin gene. So we discovered the world's first uh, nuclear lamin mutations causing uh, familial partial lipodystrophy that's subtype two. And then we went on for type three, PPAR gamma mutations. So, so, and then, then now, you know, so then I'm also sort of known for that as well for, for diabetes, even though that was never, so it's an example of just opportunity. And then um, just, you know, if it was not even on that day, my, my, that whole area of my research might've not, might've gone in a different direction. It was just the timing. And right. just that, that, that that patient, and she kind of challenged me. So in a little bit, I kind of, not I didn't <laughs> feel competitive really, but I felt, okay, well, you know, I'll give it a shot. And uh, and then fortunately it worked out okay. Yeah, you felt the motivation uh, yeah. to set out <laughs> into yeah. that. Um, how was your patient's reaction when she, when you figure it out? Yeah, so it's so I think I think the the main thing with my with the that I've tried always to do on the patient side is just to 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 always be a good listener and always be there for my patients and to you know to explain to them. So uh, so Lysandra, this comes back to the first point about like what is the relationship between research and teaching and all of that. And now mm -hmm. I realize there was wisdom when my mentor told me that even though I want to teach, and I like teaching, that's a big part of what I do as well, but, but research is fundamental because research is the, the leading edge. Research is filling the initial first draft of the blank page of the whatever it's going to be, the Wikipedia entry on, you know, the enzyme that you're interested in or whatever. So mm -hmm. we start with a, you know, blank screen and that initial of uh, uh, leading edge of knowledge acquisition is really through research. So if you're going to be successful in research, then you have to understand your field and then then 
because you have that understanding, um, it, it actually makes you more effective as a teacher. So it gives you like you have to then have to both the background knowledge and the knowledge that is like what is current. And then uh, hopefully, you know, you're able to to translate that. So I try to do that for my patients, you know, but not obviously not really in technical language, but trying to find, you know, language that they can understand. And and then then especially with genetic conditions, they're actually often more concerned for their children than they are for, the, for right. themselves. I have to let them know that, no, no, you have to be there. You have to take care of yourself because you have to be there for your children. I know you, I know you care about your children, but you know, you can't forget about yourself. Um, so, and then these sort of same elements that then are important in, you know, translating, uh, translating medicine and translating science for the general public for patients, but then it's the same same sort of skills in terms of then doing it for uh, undergrads or you know grad students or you know trainees you know and and you know to help you know with the, with my own students in the lab. Uh, but often I learn now I learn more from my students than they learn from me. So for me they're kind of learning an approach, but they're like so far ahead on the actual uh, the actual details of of what's of what's going on like right at the moment in, in the area yeah that's very um you raise very interesting points about the whole mentoring experience i think both the mentoring you received um that was sort of wisdom passed down and even pushing you towards a new area um but also how teaching and that mentoring is important for new generations that we are responsible for um, like mentoring and teaching. So what I what do you think was um, very important mentoring advice you've received? Who were the mentors that, you know, guided you yeah. to where you so are now? Yeah, so very, very early mentor that I had was a, a clinician scientist, um, Avi Angel. So he actually was a lipidologist. Uh, he's still he's still living. He's in his 80s now. Uh, but he he was the one my very, very first research project that I undertook was was really under his uh, under his direction. And then later on, he was the one who helped me to arrange my my postdoc at the at the Rockefeller in New York with Jan Breslow, uh, so it was really through his connection. So that and then I'm still doing lipids. So so like so his and that, and this is now going back to when I was like in my mid twenties. So almost forty years later, it's still like my whole career was based on that the influence of that that mentor. And then I had another really really key mentor that I met later on who was closer to my age a little bit older than me and his name was Dan Drucker and so Dan Drucker was my senior uh, resident so when I was just like a junior intern just starting out and then you know showing that I had interest in academic uh, career and so Dan was much more further advanced and he had already figured out what his career how it was going to be and that he wanted a lab and all of that and really then by by working with him and even working i worked many many hours with him just on you know uh, patient care and on the ward and, and then i learned so much really from him so many insights from him as to what would be needed uh to um 
to require acquire enough training that would help me to be uh, successful on the research side. And I'm still in touch with Dan. So he's, a, I mean, he's super, I mean, he, he cloned GLP-1. So he's basically responsible for Ozempic, you know, and, and, uh, and that whole family of, 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 of drugs and all of those mm -hmm. pathways. So, so Dan has had an amazing career. And fortunately, we're still in touch. You know, he's still like just received an email from him a couple of weeks ago. So, th so there's another example. So he's somebody I've known for for, for many, many years, for like more than 30 years, and yet, um, and had a big influence on me th through his, through his advice. So, uh, and then, you know, but you can't take everybody's advice. So the other thing is you have to know, mm -hmm. I guess, part of it is you have to say, okay, like, what do I, what's the signal to noise? What is some noise that people are telling me that I can ignore? And then what are some good signals that I think would be, uh, you know, useful uh, or helpful right. for my career? Yeah, and I think you um, mentioned something that sometimes escapes us, uh, which is generally you tend to look to mentors as people much older that have had already a successful career or that are yeah. way further ahead of you. Uh, but there's a lot of mentorship that happens in our own little like group and community with our peers, um, just people that have already gone through what you went through, you know, that grant application, <laughs> that transition that you want to make. And it's so important. I experienced that myself starting my faculty position, um, leaning into people that had just gone through that process, um, served as great mentors for that process that I was going through. Um, so I think that's very relevant in you also build these bonds with people early in their careers and kind of going through the same thing and it helps. Um, so you are now a mentor to other people and to a younger generation. Um, how has your mentoring experience inform how you deal with your mentees now and people that have diverse personalities and perspectives and interests. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a very, it's a very complex uh, uh, question, Alessandra. So I think, um, uh, so first of all, uh, you know, one of the most gratifying things I have is that then somebody who has say come through and did their PhD with me and now they're, they've moved on and they're doing a postdoc and like like getting like crushing it like getting like big papers and really you know really helping their new group where they move to which is so usually i have a pretty small uh, operation here you know at, at at my university um and my lab uh but but then so my so there's examples then of people that have you know trained here and then use it as a a stepping stone to 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 go into these you know like massive teams or big collab that's now the thing in in, in human genetics yeah. there are these massive collaborations so like when i started out you know we would do a, a, a paper on 400 patients and that would be like a big paper you know that would be like and now there is like 400 authors on one paper and there's like a million patients you know so that's the scale <laughs> of how genetics has gone so that's uh, but but for me the and and I always appreciate that my um, that the people that were my grad students uh, are are you know in touch with me and that I you know could sort of help them uh, you know move move along and then now I have actually many examples. I have one she was my student I knew her 
uh, even like when she was an undergrad and then grad student and then, <laughs> then faculty. And now she's the associate dean for research. So she's technically my boss. And so mm -hmm. I, but I knew her from when she was, you know, even an undergrad. So, you know, that's always, you know, that's gratifying as well. Um, the other thing that you mentioned, so just a kind of a, a point is that I have had situations in the lab where where we have say like four four or five really really great students simultaneously so they're all like you know in their various stages say of their phd and they're um competitive with each other mm. and then sometimes tensions arise you know and it's then becomes you become a little bit like a like a, you know i don't want to say but the model would be a little bit like a parent you know to uh to try to um you know, make sure everybody is getting the right credit and that make sure that they're not undermining each other and that they're, you know, that uh, and that if there is an issue that to me, that's the thing is that you have to get it out in the open. So if somebody mm -hmm. is upset with somebody else or like feeling threatened or something that you that, that it had, you have to clear it. It has to be, you know, you cannot just sit there. And, and so for me, you know, I have, you know, weekly lab meetings and then individual meetings with team members and then also I have just my regular technologists working in the lab and you know research associates and you know and they sometimes they can notice if there is issues or tensions between the grad students so we try to resolve this as soon as as soon as possible you know just to be you know transparent and so fortunately this always this often works out you know, sometimes then even the two that used to have tension and suddenly they're collaborating on a project and they're like, they write a paper together, you know, and then, then they're like this, you know, the starred, you know, co-first co authors, oh, but then, but then they're thinking, okay, well, who, who wants to be, I, but I really want to be first, you know, so then you still have to, uh, so it's still, <laughs> I, mean, it's, I mean, people are people, right, you know, so you yeah. have to, so a lot of it, and, and I'm sure you have the same experience as well, that you, so, so much of it is just, is just, uh, not, not not to do with the research per se, but just, um, you know, dealing with human beings. Yeah, and personalities and all of the, all that fun stuff that nobody trains yeah. you to do. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why exactly we like to have these kinds of interviews, because you hear the approach that different people have and sort of figure out what would work best for you and your situation and your environment. Um, so I think it's great that we can learn from successful experiences, um, just different approaches and see what's best. Um, so how uh, in these situations that can be even competitive, how do you determine which project is uh, next and what is the best fit for a person? So often it's a great question. So often, often it's just opportunistic. So then sometimes, you know, something and then it's like, what, what is current? So what, what is even going on right now? So that we would then, you know, go to a Gordon conference or go to a, you know, NAVBO meeting or AHA or, or, you know, and then we, you know, hear. So sometimes it's like we, we are working on something that is close to what we is just on the verge of maybe, um, you know, entering the mainstream or, or becoming uh, becoming a, a hot issue. So, so a lot of it is just recognizing and and you know keeping um, keeping enough 
networking and keeping enough contacts uh, out. And and then, uh, you know, for me, then in terms of choosing the projects for for the students or for the trainees, I you know I may I more or less let them like I present them a few options. It's like okay, here is like one from column A and two from column B, and then we have like you know this like polygenic project or whatever, and then let them think about it. And then which which one would they like, or maybe they'd like to do two. You know, one is a head to hedge, so high risk project and a low risk project, like a sure thing project. Uh, you know, so the, these kinds of uh, strategies. But again, you know, different people are different. Different people mm -hmm. have you know different risk tolerance or right. interests. So I think the main thing you just try to, um, at least I've tried to, you know, um, accommodate uh, uh, the the um, the entry because then you you had mentioned earlier about motivation. So I think if the anybody, if any of us is working on something that we feel. A real passion for or real interest and then you know the motivation is greater and then you know you the you know the the the, the chance for success is higher right so now that we're talking about um success and um finding the motivation i i'm sure that you have reviewed many different grants and written your own <laughs> different grants along the way. What is the most effective um, grantsmanship trick of the trade that you have seen or used that you would recommend other people to try out? Right, so I think the main thing with grants is that everybody has great ideas. And so the problem is that it's not a, there's never enough funding to fund all the good ideas. And so there's like the funding line is like out of proportion to, so they they go down the ranking and then eventually the, the the ranking. But then still, even what is not not sufficient for the funding line are still really good ideas and still mm -hmm. really really good grants that maybe do not even require that much um, revision right so part of it is then just persistence is just developing a thick skin and especially in the current climate you realize that you know being turned down two or three times or, or four times or five it's it's not that unusual so you right. have to then so that's the, that's the first thing the second thing is that um, uh, it's I'm always even if it's a brand new grant, I'm always putting in like pilot data and like a ton of pilot data. So like it's even, you know, it's only even to the point where it seems like, OK, like, why are you why are you asking for funds? It's like the project is half half done already and that you're but for me, again, it's just um, for feasibility, right, to demonstrate that, OK, it's so feasible that when the reviewer is looking, they're trying to pick between two projects and they say, okay, what are we going to give money to? Well, if the, the project is already so far along the way that there's, you know, it's close to the finish line, that that ends up being, uh, you know, safer bed in some ways when I'm trying to put myself in the mind of the reviewer rather right. than something where like there's not, no data collected or you just finally have like, you know, one cell line that you you have and that you're down just starting at a very early stage. Right. Uh, can be perceived that, as a lot of risk. Yes, that, that's right. So, fe so feasibility, I think, you know, when 
people on grant committees, they are looking at, you know, is it, you know, what is the track record? And then when you're new, you don't, you don't have a track record. So you have to, uh, you have to demonstrate in other ways. So then you, you know, so one way is through, you know, preliminary data, a lot of preliminary data, and then just showing that, yeah, I'm a safe bet. You know, I, I have, uh, if you, if you give me the funds, uh, you, you, you know, you won't be sorry because, you know, I'm already, uh, you know, I, I already have, you know, in a sense, you know, proven myself a little bit. So that's, uh, anyway, there, there's lots of other tricks as well. And then grantsmanship, always get other people to look at it, no matter what. I mean, there's, uh, so for me, this was a hard thing. Like I didn't actually, I, I, I didn't want, you know, I thought, okay, I know, I know, I know the best what my topic is and what, but, but even if you, but no matter what, if you show it to other people, and then get their comments, even if it's not exactly in your area, but it never fails. The, the you know, any advice that you get always makes it better. So just right. all, always, um, you know, don't, don't be scared of, uh, of getting, getting input from as many people as you can. Yeah, that's, that's great advice, I think. And it generally works for anything that you write. Yes. people yep. and it's good to have people outside of your area because they're seeing it from a different perspective and you might be too inside the forest to see <laughs> anything else other than trees so exactly. it's good to get that outside perspective um sure. and you might encounter a reviewer that's also not in your field <laughs> so yeah. it's good to know that your science can reach other uh people in other fields. So I usually play this game of sorts. It's a word game with people we interviewed in this podcast. Um, and it's just to get you to know a little bit better. Um, it's a word association game. So I'll say a couple of things and you just tell me the first thing you think about. So what is or what are your hobbies? Hobbies. So right now, um, you know, it's I used to, I used to be a musician, but I, I but I have unfortunately have not uh, have not kept my music up. But I wish I can get back to it. That would be like my number one goal. I I, I play the piano, and I wish oh. I can get back to it. Uh, but then now, like right at the moment, so I'm very focused on like keeping myself healthy so fitness and then I get very bored by exercise so I am very I, I listen to these podcasts so I, I do a lot of podcast listening and uh, like so audiobooks and uh, uh, and podcasts and that's just to break the boredom of uh, of exercise so that's my kind of my at the moment uh, answer to your question. So what is the latest podcast you listen to or your favorite podcast to listen to? Oh, I have so, so many. There's uh, there's these podcasts on uh, American public media. So, you know, there's there's the Marketplace podcast that I love to listen to. There's one called History. Uh, the Rest is History, which is from England, which is really just uh, two really smart historians. And they're just talking about so lately they were talking about Napoleon because there's the movie about Napoleon coming out. Oh, coming out, yeah. Yeah, but they were talking about the um, 
like the like the real like history and going over like the history but in a very so it's not like reading where you have but if you just listen to these uh, you know and they're they're so smart and they're funny and you learn something you know and even like you know things that's new so so that's just that's one example so i so i like you know i like history i'm i'm interested in current events and um you know I always listen listen to like the news podcast and so on nice um so we're gonna move to a little bit to the lab what is one thing that you really like to do in the lab at the bench so so yeah so at the bench so i so if you can believe this so, so i started like my first project was before there was a pcr machine so uh so there was no pcr machine so we did pcr we had like three water baths set up at three different temperatures and then we took the Eppendorf tube and then we moved it from one bath to the other, like physically, we moved it like, and we did wow. that cycle like 30 times, right? And then yes. we always spike yes. in, we add more polymerase and did that, right? So I really got into like, so with those, you know, and I really enjoyed that because then that was like three hours and you have to concentrate and so on, but it was like, so we were kind of like the human, the human PCR machine. Yeah. Uh, so I've always liked, so anything that involves like pipetting, so even though it's, um, you know, it's kind of, uh, it's like not, you know, not that exciting or whatever, but yeah, there's still a lot of the procedures that we do, or even when we, when we, when we make our libraries or when we, we get things ready for the next gen sequencing. Yeah, so I find it the, soothing. Yeah. It's something that I know how to do and it's so mechanical at this point that it, it soothes me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel I, that's the, that's what I get out of it as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So what is your most dreaded lab technique, something you don't want so, to do? Yeah, bioinformatics, computer program. So I'm glad. So we have, like, so first, fortunately, all of my, like, the trainees that come in, so they already have, like, some experience with uh, with programming and writing code and in R. But for me, that's, like, so I can use, like, prepackaged programs or, like, you know, things where there's an interface and I can just enter data. But... But, but that's the one thing. And I think probably, I mean, I probably could learn it if I'm forced to, but I, I'm fortunate <laughs> that I, I don't have to do that. Yeah. What is your favorite cell type? My favorite, sorry? My, cell type. My favorite cell type? Oh, I like Hep G2 cells. I think just historically in my field, it's been, there's been a lot. Um, in the early days when we were doing the mutations of lipoprotein lipase, we were expressing them in COS7 cells. And that was just because there was like little background. So we could actually then really figure out what the mutant lipases were doing. Um, and then, yeah, and then sometimes we use like human, you know, human fiber blasts just as, uh, you know, sources, uh, sources of our material. So kind of immortalized cell lines. Right. So, and then the lymphocytes, that's the big thing. So like every, like for me now, it's like, um, like lymphocytes from peripheral blood. So that's where we get, uh, that's where we get most of our DNA. So anyway. What is your favorite model to use? Either model organism or just model in general? Well, so uh, we have used, uh, I mean, there like that has been very informative for me in the past has been uh, these uh, rabbits. The rabbit is uh, is um, for for some aspects of lipid metabolism. So, for example, hepatic lipase. So, so the rabbit is a good model. 
And then there's also the Watanabe rabbit, which is a rabbit that has uh, familial hypercholesterolemia, like the equivalent of human familial hypercholesterolemia. That's due to a discrete uh, mutation in in that. So of that of the you know of the sort of um, vertebrate models, uh, I guess it, I guess it would be the rabbit. And then you know, and then we have um, just you know. I, I guess you know small you know models simpler ones so like the the pro prokaryotes that you know the cell lines and so on that we that we use as well. That's very interesting. I did not know that rabbits got any type of disease specifically. I haven't thought about it much. <laughs> well, yeah. So rabbits are. It's interesting. As rabbits are vegetarian, so when they eat, like they're eating carrots and so on. So when they eat their yeah. own diet, then they they don't. But if you feed a rabbit uh, hamburgers, then it <laughs> will it will develop uh, like a remnant uh, dyslipidemia, and uh, and so it, then it resembles certain certain human dyslipidemias, and some of that is is related to the to the genetic background of the rabbit. That's very interesting. Really cool. Um, so another question, the final one for our word association game, was the last paper you read? Oh, the last paper? Well, there was a, a paper that I'm actually reading now, and it uh, was a multi-omics approach, and it's on a protein called ANGPTL3, angiopoietin-like 3 protein. And so these authors um, have studied it both at the, the DNA level, and then they looked at the RNA level, and then they also looked at the at the protein, you know, so the, um, um, and so they have like three NF, so three levels of experiments that were uh, concordant with each other. So they were like the natural loss of function variants, and then looking at the, the effect on tissue expression it's mainly a liver expressed uh, protein and then uh, so liver like rna and then then looking at the level of, uh, of the whole protein and then the, the consequences so there are consequences on the lipid profile and also uh, we believe probably on heart disease risk although it's a little bit controversial for that protein so um anyway that's a paper that i was just reading this morning good um so we've talked a lot. I think, I mean, your experience is just amazing and your record. Um, and you have been in the front and center of all these big genomic technology. Um, and you've seen basically all the advances from not even having a PCR machine to now right. all these sequencing projects. Where do you right. see your field going in the future? So I think it's really, I think AI, so we already are using AI to predict the consequences. So we, we whenever we find a human mutation, so now our next generation sequencing is like finding so many, so many variants in the genome, like it's like too much information, you right. know, and then most of them fortunately are benign. Uh, but we, so we've always used some version of AI you know, like conservation, evolutionary conservation, or like predicting the impact on the, like the secondary or tertiary structure. Uh, but, but I think now that there is that, that I'm looking for the next leap of what, what AI can now do in terms of, can you write a poem or can you, you know, uh, answer a multiple choice question. But when, once AI can actually synthesize sort of scientific knowledge and it's starting to happen, um, so I think that's going to be um, 
that's going to be, I'm looking forward to that. But then the other thing is going to be um, high throughput functional assays. So again, we're finding all of these like variants. And so like one ultimate, like to me, the ultimate proof is like to, to prove dysfunction in an actual experiment, like, you know, on, on the bench top. So in vitro, uh, you know, site-directed mutagenesis in vitro expression. So, but, but it's just, so right now, we, we need to scale that up. So there's got to be some increment, like the next increment in technology where we can do, like we can do those experiments on an industrial scale, like just checking thousands of mutants, you know, simultaneously in a, in a reliable way. So, right. so these are the things I'm looking out for. Yeah, that would definitely advance science very quickly. Yeah. So I, we're, Getting to the end of our interview, and it's been lovely talking to you. It's been so great learning from you. Um, and I like to finish these kinds of interviews asking um, what are what what is something that you would say to the past you regarding directing your career or setting up your lab? What would be something that you would tell yourself in the past if you could? Yeah, so, so the thing is, when I'm younger, so when you're younger, you, uh, when I was younger, I felt like there was just this pressure, I have to get it done now. And like, like, you know, and now, like, with the with the benefit of like, having gone through, you know, 35 or 40 years of, you know, in this same general area doing what I'm doing, if you need to take an extra year or an extra two to, to really figure it out like there's not a right like what seems to be a big time pressure and big rush when you are younger that in retrospect when you look back on it it was not you know and that it may actually have been been, been a detriment if you rushed into something and then didn't actually uh, didn't actually sort through or, or consider all the consequences so I think that would be the main thing is like always work hard of course and always do your best and so on but then the but then also take time to enjoy take take time to enjoy the world and take time to enjoy your life outside your career and then even if something takes you a little bit longer in the in the long run you know what seems important when you are young or with the that it in the long run it washes out it's not that important Thank you for joining us on this episode of Vascular Crosstalk. We would like to hear from you. Please let us know what you thought about this episode, future topics that you would like to hear about, and other people that you would like us to interview. You can reach out via Twitter at Vascular Biology. We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was produced by Netbo's Education Committee, and I want to thank Niha Auha and Strider Meadows for their work in making this podcast possible. This was Lysandra Villa Ellis for Vascular Crosstuck. Until we meet again. Bye.